Hi, I'm Josh Oyster, a partner in the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group at Ropes and Gray, and welcome to Nonbinding Guidance, a podcast series focused on current trends in life sciences regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. Joined today with my partner, Lincoln Sang, from our London office. Lincoln is the head of our European Life Sciences Practice. Delighted to have you here, Lincoln, with me, because today's topic has a global appeal. Focusing today on recent regulatory developments related to the development and approval of oncology drugs, we're going to compare contrast approaches in the U.S. and Europe and discuss what that means for companies trying to bring new oncology products to market. Thank you, Josh. Timely and equitable patient access to innovation has always been a recurrent theme of the EU regulatory system, uh, which continues to evolve. Uh, it is timely today to have this conversation because uh, uh, a few days ago, on the 26th of April, the European Commission published potential major reform of the EU pharmaceutical legislation. The evolving regulatory system uh, seeks to strike the right balance of uh, regulatory control of innovation on one hand, based on robust evidence, and the timely patient access to transformative innovation on the other hand. This has been a continuing debate amongst uh, the regulatory authorities, the legislature, payers, uh, healthcare professionals, and most importantly, the patients. To kick us off, I'll briefly recap a few recent FDA developments that tee up some of the key issues. In, in late March, FDA published a draft guidance describing clinical trial considerations to support accelerated approval of oncology drugs. FDA's accelerated approval program, as most know, allows for the earlier approval of drugs that treat serious or life-threatening conditions that provide a meaningful advantage over available therapies and that have an effect on a surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. For those drugs that receive accelerated approval, FDA generally requires the sponsor to conduct a confirmatory study to verify and describe that clinical benefit as a condition of continued approval. Our team at Ropes and Gray analyzed this March draft guidance and a client alert in more detail, but in a nutshell, the guidance describes FDA's current thinking on a few key issues. First, FDA reiterated its preference for randomized controlled trials as opposed to single arm trials to support the accelerated approval of oncology drugs in the U.S. FDA has long recognized that randomized controlled trials are the most reliable method for demonstrating efficacy, but FDA appears to be upping the ante now and more directly suggesting that single-arm trials to support accelerated approval will only be accepted in limited circumstances. Second thing, FDA also discussed one-trial versus two-trial approaches for the approval of oncology drugs. In a one-trial approach, a surrogate endpoint-like objective response rate would be evaluated to support accelerated approval, and then a different endpoint, like overall survival, would be used to verify clinical benefit after a longer follow-up period uh, and then support traditional FDA approval. The one-trial approach has the potential to increase efficiency and reduce enrollment issues that can come with separate confirmatory trials in the two-trial approach. But the one-trial approach also has the potential to introduce bias. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention up front is that FDA's recommendations also suggest that the agency is interested in having sponsors evaluate oncology drugs in earlier lines of therapy earlier in the development process. All right. Now, Lincoln, let's switch gears and bring you into the conversation. How has the EU been addressing these sorts of issues? 
Um, and, and perhaps you might start by explaining how the EU's conditional authorization process is a little bit different from the accelerated approval process we have here in the U.S. Thank you, Josh. Turning to your specific question, the equivalent of the U.S. accelerated approval process is the conditional approval process. The conditional authorization framework was created in 2004 as part of the overhaul of the EU regulatory framework. This allows for early approval on the basis of less complete clinical data than normally required because the benefit of the earlier patient access outweighs the potential risks of limited data. Conditional authorizations to specific obligations to incrementally generate complete data set on the medicines after the authorization. The conditional approval is granted to meet unmet medical needs of patients for treating seriously debilitating or life-threatening diseases. But the approval is still predicated upon the need to demonstrate a positive benefit risk evaluation. In 2021, there were 13 medicines approved on a conditional basis. Thanks, Lincoln. So how does the regulatory standard for approval work in this context? Does the conditional marketing authorization process lower the bar compared with a standard approval? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, the EU legislation does not set out a substantial evidence standard uh, like in America, nor does it state that an approval must be based on two pivotal clinical trials either. Rather, the law specifies that if possible, randomized controlled clinical trials are expected to evaluate the effect of the test drug against a placebo and an active comparator of proven therapeutic value. But the applicant can use other trial design provided that it is justified to do so. The test for granting approval is centered around the evaluation of whether the clinical benefits outweigh the risks. The same evidentiary standard applies to full marketing authorization as much as conditional marketing authorizations. Put simply, whilst there is no formal requirement to include two or more pivotal studies, in most cases, a program with several studies is the most and perhaps only feasible way to demonstrate an internal consistency, i.e. lack of bias. The positive treatment effect must be pharmacologically and biologically plausible. So how does this standard apply with cancer drugs in particular? And, and how do factors like study design and the selection of endpoints factor into the review and approval process? That's an important question to ask. Um, the evidentially standard for approving cancer drugs, including drugs intended to treat rare cancer types is exactly the same as drugs for other therapeutic areas. Turning to the endpoint selection, which seems to be the key question you want me to address, the starting point seems to be that the primary endpoint should be the validated and reliable variable capable of providing the most clinically relevant and convincing evidence directly related to the primary objective of the trial to provide strong scientific evidence in relation to efficacy. The primary variable should be the one used when estimating the sample size. Now, in relation to cancer development arena, overall survival 
has long been considered by global regulatory authorities such as US FDA and the European Medicines Agency as the gold standard for the evaluation of new oncology therapies. Now, overall survival is an unambiguous endpoint measure because it is evaluated on a continuous time scale, which gives precise accuracy for the time of the event. However, the use of overall survival can be extremely challenging. Take an example, if the survival is only incrementally improved by a new treatment, the demonstration of increased overall survival may require large patient populations, several years of uh, accrual and follow-up and higher cost. Now, this is especially true if the natural history of the disease cause is lengthy. In an increasingly challenging drug pricing environment, costs and efficiency of completing clinical development are becoming more relevant than before. Now, over the last 10 years, there has been increasing interest in using uh, other outcome measures than overall uh, survival to study new anti-cancer drugs, including what you have alluded to and also the debate on use of progression-free survival. The interest in progression-free survival as an endpoint stems in part from the challenges associated with overall survival as an endpoint. But it also has been stimulated by the fact that many new cancer drugs are targeted towards molecular mechanism of action that are cytostatic, i.e. you stop the, the disease progression. Cytostatic rather than cytotoxic, i.e. to kill the, uh, the cancer cells. Those drugs are not expected to provide the same objective response rates of earlier drugs and instead act to prevent progression rather than cause tumors to regress and thereby impact mortality. Now, interest in PFS has also been stimulated by increasingly common use of treatment paradigms that allow for multiple rounds of treatment, first, second, third, or even fourth stage therapies, each producing incremental changes difficult to capture in the context of a single study using overall survival as the primary endpoint. In contrast, PFS can be studied in short-term context for each treatment without the confounding influence of the next. The question here is whether or not PFS could be considered as a surrogate for overall survival, which is the gold standard. It is now recognized that the correlation between PFS and OS is both variable and unpredictable and depends on the tumor type and tumor stage, as well as the particular drug being investigated. PFS, not always reliable surrogate for overall survival, uh, is not surprising as a proposition, given that tumor pathways affected by new drugs and the nature of drug and tumor interaction, as well as drug toxicity, are often incompletely understood. In relation to your question, George, in, of the use of a PFS, the EU position is that an effect on prolonging PFS of sufficient magnitude can be considered as clinically relevant, provided that 
it does not cause detriment on the other important endpoints. The reason is that documented progression of disease is generally assumed to be associated with subsequent onset or worsening of symptoms, worsening of quality of life, and the need for subsequent treatments, usually associated with lower efficacy and worse toxicity. If the assumption does not hold, then the PFS effect would not be considered as clinically relevant. If uh, PFS is used as a primary endpoint, then the overall survival in Europe should be included as a secondary endpoint. Thanks, Lincoln, for all that that helpful insight. On the topic of, of endpoints and the topic of PFS, uh, another interesting development in the U.S. Uh, was a recent research article published in March from a group of FDA officials, including uh, several from FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence, that highlighted these concerns you were mentioning with the ability of endpoints like PFS and objective response rate to serve as surrogate endpoints for overall survival. The article discusses instances where there has been discordance between ORR and OS or PFS and OS. And the FDA authors concluded the divorce between the efficacy findings of early endpoints like ORR and PFS and their complicated relationship to OS highlights possible irreconcilable differences. In 2023, the FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence is planning a series of workshops to examine the role of early endpoints, the relationship to overall survival, and considerations around obtaining the information necessary to make informed decisions on the risks and benefits of a novel cancer therapy. I think on the FDA side, we're, we're still exploring a lot of the issues that you mentioned, Lincoln, in, in, in figuring out how exactly uh, PFS and OS are related and, and how reliable they are. Um, but it's, it's something we'll have to watch and see. Absolutely, George. I think there's a very uh, important observation you have made. And then turning back to another point I mentioned earlier on the FDA side, that you know, talking about the FDA's perspective on on single arm studies um, in the EU, is there still acceptance of of single arm studies, particularly for oncology drugs, or is the EU's position on that evolving along the lines of the FDA's? Again, this is a very important and interesting question you have raised, uh, and also very timely, uh, because. Uh, the European Medicines Agency just published a reflection paper on this particular topic for public consultation. The, the paper was uh, the culmination of the initial discussion in 2016 between the European Medicines Agency and its advisory committee and the ESMO, which is the European Society of Medical Oncology, on single arm trials in oncology. The, the genesis of the debate lies on the observations that single-arm trials have led to regulatory approval of oncology drugs in Europe. In case of uh, dramatic uh, activity in well-defined patient population with a higher med medical need, uh, when randomized controlled trials are not possible, single-arm trials augmented with appropriate statistical approaches could become the standard basis for, of evidence of efficacy for new applications. Now, this really illustrates the willingness of the regulators on this side of the pond to exercise a measured degree of regulatory latitude to determine the evidentially standard 
for establishing clinical efficacy and safety. Agency's proposal also challenges the statutory standard for a three-arm clinical trial designed to establish clinical efficacy, as we have discussed uh, earlier. And also it challenges the general dogma that a comparative trial must ideally include an internal control group. Whether it is a placebo or an active comparator, in order to obtain an unbiased estimate of the true treatment effect. The need for an internal control applies even for an evaluation of the clinical efficacy of a drug intended to treat a very small patient population, such as uh, an anti-cancer drug uh, for treating a rare cancer type. Uh, even though uh, internal controls are preferred option for comparative trials, the agency as well as it, its advisory committee have accepted under exceptional circumstances, external controls may be used, for example, historical controls. Now, the EMA's advisory committee has indicated in the past that the absence of any control data is only likely to be acceptable if the natural cause of disease is very well known. Uh, in this context, uh, patient registry, another topical regulatory consideration may provide important information on the natural cause of disease and may help in assessing efficacy and safety. And also validated registry could be used as a source of historical controls to inform uh, efficacy assessment. Now, one thing is very clear from the draft reflection paper. It highlights the need to identify, manage, and mitigate sources of bias in a single arm study to establish the true treatment effect of a new oncology drug. Thanks so much, Lincoln. I really appreciate the insight there. We've talked a lot about the US and Europe so far today. With the time we have left, um, I'm curious. Uh, do you expect the UK after Brexit to take a different position on any of these issues we've been discussing? I, I, I realize that's probably an incredibly complicated question, but I'd be curious to have your, your thoughts. Thank you very much, George, for raising this important topic. I, I really do, don't think that there will be substantial difference between the UK and the European approach. Uh, in terms of evaluating clinical efficacy and safety of oncology drugs. The, the, the current the EU oncology guideline was initially authored by the UK agency, and the underlying principles remain, as far as I can see, uh, valid. Post-Brexit, uh, the UK government's policy, as well as the UK MHRA public statement, is that it wants to be position as an international agency by working more closely with its international coalition partners, such as US FDA and other uh, overseas uh, agencies. In fact, for cancer drug approvals, the UK agency is already part of the international collaboration efforts initiated by US FDA, the, the, the Orbitz uh, program, which was initiated in May 2019 uh, to provide a framework for concurrent submission and the review of oncology drugs 
amongst various international agencies. This is in recognition of the fact that the pivotal clinical trials in oncology are usually conducted internationally and globally. And, and those global trials are increasingly important for investigating the safety and effectiveness of cancer drugs for approval in the US and beyond. Now, future drug development may benefit by establishing a greater uniformity of uh, new global, global standards, which we have been talking about today, uh, leading to really optimal design of uh, these important clinical trials to benefit patients. Great. Well, thank you, Lincoln. I, I think that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. I, I really appreciate you joining as part of this important conversation. I'm sure we'll be back together again soon on another podcast. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in as well. For more information about our life sciences regulatory and compliance practice, please visit our practice pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can listen to non-binding guidance and other Ropes Talk podcasts through our podcast newsroom on our website, or you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.